1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 1 through 12. Thank you, Dr. Horton, for your consistent expounding and opening the truths out of God's Word. You do it with profundity. You do it with consistency. You do it with authenticity. Thank you for not compromising truth for a crowd. Thank you for standing on the Word of God as the Word of God dwells richly in you. Pastor Amberson, thank you for your friendship, my brother, and uh, for being such a good, a good host and an even, even greater friend. I want to talk about a mirror for identity. A mirror for identity. Hear these words from the word, 1 Kings 19, 1 through 12. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, it is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. 
I want to contend to you that uh, James A. Sanders is right in saying that biblical characters do not primarily serve us as models for morality, but rather as mirrors for identity. Not models for morality, be like, but mirrors for identity, that they mirror us, and we see our picture in the scrapbook of biblical biography. I think that Elijah represents a mirror for identity for us. When I was at Southern Seminary, I desired to enter the PhD program following my graduation with an MDF. One of my friends was Rob Jackson, Jr. He also applied for the PhD program. Dr. William Hendricks was the director at Southern Seminary of that program. He applied, Dr. Hendricks accepted it, and consented to be his supervisor. He took every seminar from Dr. Hendricks. He was mentored by Dr. Hendricks. He was befriended by Dr. Hendricks. He went to Israel for a few weeks with Dr. Hendricks. Dr. Hendricks had an impact on his life and if you were to take the DNA of Rob Jackson, you would see the name William Hendricks there. Graduated, went to pastor the Central Baptist Church in Decatur, Alabama. From there, he went down to the University of Mobile and is now serving on the Board of Missions of the Alabama State Convention of the Southern Baptist Convention. The Lord spoke to Rob. He shared this with me and gave me permission to share it with you, as he has shared it many times. He said, the Lord impressed upon him to call Dr. Hendricks and tell Dr. Hendricks just how impactful he had been in his life. He called Southern Seminary. Southern Seminary informed him that Dr. Hendricks was no longer teaching there, but had moved to Mill Valley, California to teach at the Golden Gate Baptist Theological Seminary. He called out there. They informed him that he had moved to Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas. When he asked for Dr. Hendricks' phone number from the operator, she said, we're not allowed to give uh, the faculty's phone number or address or any of the vital information that uh, he was seeking. But he said, I must call Dr. Hendricks because he has had such uh, an influence on my life. She saw how urgent the call was. And she said to him, I will give you his phone number if you will not reveal the source. She gave him the number. He called. Mrs. Hendricks picked up the phone. He said, Mrs. Hendricks, this is uh, Rob Jackson. You probably won't remember me. She stopped him. and She said, yes, I remember you. You went to Israel with us. He said, yes. He said, I want to talk to Dr. Hendricks because the Lord has laid him on my heart and I've delayed this too long. I want him to know just how significant his presence has been in my life. She said, Rob, he's in the bed and I will give him the phone. Dr. Hendricks picked up the phone. Rob began to talk 
and tell him just how he had touched his life and how he had um, strengthened him, how he had stretched him, how he had helped to mature him and develop him and to help him to be a person who could think critically about theology and biblical realities. And then all of a sudden he heard in the background this sound. Dr. Hendricks was crying. Dr. Hendricks, you're crying? Yes, Rob, I'm crying. Rob, I just left Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary just last week. And I walked down the hall. No one knew me. No one spoke to me. I felt that all the books I had written and all the courses I had taught and all the people I had mentored were no avail. And now that you've called me and you've told me what you've told me, that I've touched your life and God has used me to help to develop you. I feel like I could die feeling that my labor has not been in vain. Elijah knew that feeling of knowing that he had reached the heights of success. And now he was asking God, I've had enough. Take my life. I don't want to live. Perhaps as a parent you feel that way. Do you know what it's like to be rejected by a child that you poured everything into? As a friend, do you know what it's like to have stepped out of your convenient place and moved into an area that brought you to great vulnerability in order to rescue someone else? Do you know what it's like? as a ministry worker, to give you all in all. And a person forgets you and forgets that you even lived. Mm. Elijah is a mirror for us. I think Elijah reminds me of myself running on empty. I was driving my Buick Saber, which uh, had gotten up to almost 40,000 miles. I had uh, a wallet full of money, doing fine. I had somewhere to go. I didn't have time to fill up my tank because my tank uh, was living in the neighborhood of empty. But I was busy and I had time to stop. Plenty of money, little gas. Then after a while, the car started sneezing and coughing. And there was no exit for me to get off to get gas. And I ran out full of money, but empty, running on fumes. Do you know what it's like to be full of success, full of accomplishments, full of attainments, to have a GPA average, to have six figures that you make, full of vitality and vim and vigor, in terms of your physicality, and yet there is such a silence in your life, and there's such a gnawing agony in your soul. Something is missing. And all the money, and all the renown, and all the success cannot fulfill you or fill you full. 
Jim McKay, hear him, 1971. First time he said this, spanning the globe to bring you the constant variety of sports from the thrill of victory to the agony of defeat. Elijah knew both. There he is in the 17th chapter of 1 Kings. God told him to give a three-and-a-half-year meteorological report. Tell, Eli, tell Ahab, the king of the northern kingdom, and all of Israel there, that it is not going to rain for three-and-a-half years. Neither will that be due. Which meant then that vegetation would die out, the livestock would die out, there would be famine all over the land. And Elijah walked around the northern kingdom with the key to the water, water department on his belt while everything was dying. But God did something. God kept the brook careth babbling and bubbling so that Elijah could have drink water. And then God sent a catering service, ravens, unclean birds, to give Elijah clean food, meat in the morning and meat in the evening. And then after a while, the brook dried up and God had another place to sit in. He says, uh, go on over to Zarephath, Gentile territory. There's a widow there. She's gathering some sticks and she's going to rub them together because she has enough meal and enough oil. And when she makes the fire, she's going to make a huge biscuit what we used to call a hoe cake when I was a boy. And she and her son, since she's a widow and no husband, will eat that and then she's going to die. And Elijah saw her from Zarephath, the Syrophoenicia area that Jesus ministered to when this woman in Syrophoenicia had a daughter who was stricken by the devil in Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 to 28. And there, Elijah has the holy audacity to ask this widow, fix me a little cake first. Fix me one first. And she has enough faith in the God of the prophet that she will be willing to give in to his request, the prophet of God, and fixed him a little cake first, as if she anticipated Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. And she fixed him a little cake first. And God, every time she dipped out a pint of oil, God put an oil well in her jug. And every time she dipped out a quart of meal, God put a cornfield in her bottle. And it lasted for three and a half years. Thrill of victory. Her son will die later on in that 17th chapter, and Elijah will go there because he sends for the prophet. Because in some situation we have to understand, you, send, you have to send for the prophet. That's what God's working through. You can have all kinds of specialists that you want, but you want someone who represents God. And if you have a doctor, you want to have a doctor who believes in God. Anyway... Elijah ministers to that boy, and God, through his power, resuscitates, raises this boy back to life, and Elijah gives the boy back to his mother. Feel of victory. Chapter 18, 
Elijah challenges King Ahab in the northern kingdom and asked him a question in chapter 18, verse 21. How long will you halt between two opinions? In other words, how long will you limp between two opinions? In other words, how long will you straddle the fence? In other words, you are not going to have the luxury of neutrality. You will have to choose one or the other. If Baal is God, serve Baal. If God is God, serve God. But you can't serve both. As Jesus will say, you can't serve two masters. You'll love one or you'll hate the other. And so Elijah called for a showdown on Mount Carmel and said to Ahab and his 450 prophets, the God who answers by fire, that's the God. He gave these prophets all day long to call on Baal. Baal didn't answer. They cut themselves so that blood began to stream from their bodies in order to be dramatic enough to garner the attention of Baal. But Baal didn't answer. And Elijah, in 75 words, called upon God and said to God in so many words, I know what you can do, but for the benefit of those standing around, show that you are the real God in Israel. And God sent down fire that sucked up the water, sucked up the dust, dried up the stones, dried up the sacrifices so that nothing was left. And all the people cried out, Yahweh is God. Yahweh is God. And Elijah had the 40, 50 prophets slaughtered. The thrill of victory. But when Queen Jezebel heard about it, she's the real king. She just has the title of queen. She said to Elijah as she sent an APB email to him. It read this way. In 24 hours, you're going to be like one of the, those 24 prophets, those 450 prophets. In 24 hours, Elijah, when he heard this, the Bible says in the text, he was afraid, he ran, he took his servant with him, went down to Beersheba, left his servant there, and then went a day's journey to the wilderness, sat underneath a broom brush tree, prayed, and said, I've had enough. Take my life, God. I don't want to live. I am no better than my fathers. Thrill of victory, agony of defeat. I contend that there is the possibility of a coexistence of the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat simultaneously, not concomitantly, not one after the other, but at the same time. The question is, how will you and I handle that? Elijah, when he hears Jezebel say, you are going to be like one of my 250 prophets, dead in 24 hours. The first thing is, the Bible says, he was afraid. I thought he was fearless. I thought he had steel in every one of his bones. After all, he goes to heaven without dying. God sends a fiery chariot to transport Elijah 
Afraid? Do prophets become afraid? Do pastors become afraid? Do Christians become afraid? Yes! There is no need of us trying to convince anyone that we are impervious and uh, we are non-penetrable when it comes to fear. It can grab you at any moment. It's Karl Barth, the great Swiss theologian, who says, courage is fear on his knees, saying his prayers. Fear on his knees, saying his prayers, and telling God, I'm afraid. I don't know what this diagnosis is. I don't know if he's coming back home. I don't know if I'm going to be able to overcome this. I don't know if my child will get life for this. I'm afraid. Why don't you just tell God what you feel? He already knows it's not for him, but it's for him, but for you. Why don't you just tell him? Have a little talk with Jesus. Tell him all about your troubles. He'll hear your feeble cry, and he'll answer by and by. Feel a little prayer will turn it. No fire's burning. Just a little talk with Jesus will make it. Why don't you tell him? Tell him when you get angry, even when you get angry with him. Don't you understand that God is not fragile, but he is faithful, and he'll let you have the first word, but he has the last word. Tell him. Tell him how you feel. The Bible has already told us. In Psalm 139, verse 2, he knows your thought afar off. And just because you don't say it doesn't mean he doesn't know it. He knows your thought afar off, which means before you get it, he abducts your thought. He kidnaps your thought. He intercepts your thought. He knows your thought. So tell him how you feel, and he will work with you so that as you have courage on your knees, faith, will evict fear, and you'll be able to stand knowing that you do not stand alone. He's afraid. Another thing the text says, he runs. He runs all the way down to the southernmost border of Judah, Beersheba. Where's his ministry? He's called to a ministry in Israel, the northern kingdom. He's now out of his prophetic jurisdiction at the very border of the southern kingdom. Mm. He runs, and now he takes and leaves his servant, who is not known, goes down one day's journey to a broom brush tree and sits under the broom brush tree. And the Bible says he is alone. Sometimes, brothers and sisters, that is our strength when we are alone. Not only just physically, but alone in terms of our surroundings, alone. I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. And the voice I hear falling on my ear, the Son of God discloses, and he walks with me, he talks with me. He tells me I am his own, and the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. Alone. How long has it been 
since you've talked with the Lord and told him your heart's hidden secret? How long since you prayed? How long since you stayed on your knees till the light shone through? How long has it been since your mind has been at ease? How long since your heart knew no burden? Can you call him your friend? How long has it been since you really knew he cared for you? Arthur John Gossip was one of the great preachers of the 20th century. Preacher, pastor, theologian from Scotland. The love of his life, his wife died. And it absolutely disrupted his world. He didn't return to the pulpit right away. His love was gone. But when he came back, the first sermon he preached was titled, When Life Tumbles In, What Then? When Life Tumbles In, What Then? And he used Job chapter 1 as his text. And he was saying this, Job had lost everything and finally came to this position Chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. Naked came I into the world, and naked shall I return. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And challenges us with this question. When life tumbles in, what do you do? If you go to the bottom, is the bottom solid? Will it keep you? Or have we just been seeking and preaching and thinking about things that are so exciting, but when life tumbles in, will that conviction hold you and keep you? Can you praise him when you're in the deepest night as well as, well as when you're on the highest mountain? He's all alone. He sits down under that broom tree. He prays. That's a good thing. He prays. That's good. It took him that long to start finally praying. But he does pray. But look how he prays. I've had enough. Do you know those words, I've had enough? I don't mean I've had enough to hear. I've had enough. You've got to have an experience where you can eventually say, I have been through enough to know that he is enough. For me. That's what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 12, verse number 9. His grace is sufficient, which really means it's more than enough. God doesn't just give you enough, he gives you more than enough. My daddy would, was a coffee drinker, and he would want me to go and get the coffee off of the stove and then start, it was steaming, poured it in the cup. Had a saucer underneath. He said, no. I said, oh, it's full. No, no, no. Keep pouring it. I keep pouring it. It's going into the saucer. Keep pouring it. And what he did was to take and take that coffee, which was in the cup, that which went into the saucer, it cooled off, and he dropped from the saucer and let me have some because I couldn't handle the hotness of the cup. What God does is let you drink from the salsa. The cup's too hot. You can't take it. He pours it over and lets you 
sip from the saucer so that you can enjoy later the abundance of the cup. I've been through enough to know that he is enough for me. He says, I've had enough. He says, take my life, I want to die. Carolyn Justice James, who wrote the book, When Life and Beliefs Collide, says when faith is stripped to the bone, that's all you have left, it's just faith. When faith is stripped to the bone, and all your props and crutches are gone, those things that you and I lean on, props and crutches, our titles, gone, health, gone, financial resources, gone, relationships, gone, our knowledge of God, that He is good and that He is on the throne is the only thing that will keep you going. When all you have is just faith, faith stripped to the bone, and all your props and crutches are gone, nothing else to lean on, and all you have left is Jesus. You'll never know that you know that Jesus is enough until all you have left is Jesus, and that's the only one you can depend upon. Our knowledge of God that He is good and that He's on the throne is the only thing that will keep you going. I've had enough. Take my life. In a real way, that's what God wanted. Elijah's life, not the cessation of it, but the control of it. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my lips and let them move by the impulse of thy love. Lord, I give myself to thee. Thine forevermore shall. He wants your life, not in a suicidal way, but in a sacrificial way. Take my life. I don't want to. Now, he didn't mean that. If he wanted to die, he didn't have to run from Mount Carmel and come all the way out here in the wilderness. He could have stopped by Jezreel. That's where the palace is. That's where Ahab and Jezebel live. Jezebel would have been glad to accommodate him. You said you want to live, I want to die. I've already given you an APB that you're going to be dead. You're just making it easy. Come on over here. Here's the guillotine here. Here, here are my swordsmen here. So he didn't mean it. And I'm so glad that there have been prayers that I prayed that God vetoed. And there have been some prayers you prayed. They were not devastating, really, you know, that you thought were good. They were good. And, uh, you know, you saw this, this young lady and you wanted to marry her. And you saw this young man, you wanted to marry him. And God said, no, that door was shut. And it bothered you. Until five years later, you looked at him or her, and you said, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> because as Soren Kierkegaard said, that 19th century Danish theologian, life must be lived forward, but you could only understand it backwards. Life must be lived forward, but you only understand it backwards. And when you look back in reflection on what God has done to superintend your life, you become grateful that he closed some doors, that he said no to some of your yeses because he had a purpose for you that he did not want to be destroyed. Take my life. I don't want to live. I know better than my fathers who have been slain by Jezebel. Well, there he is. He does the most religious thing that he can do. And that is this, he goes to sleep. He's tired. He doesn't go to church. He doesn't sing out of the, the hymnal. 
He doesn't read from tracts. He doesn't even read the Bible. He goes to sleep because he is physically, psychologically, emotionally, spiritually tired. An angel wakes him up, touches him. Here's some, here's some bread cooked on hot coals. Here's some water. He eats and he drinks and goes back to sleep. He's tired. Angel wakes him up again, gives him more bread and more water. And on the strength of that bread and water, he goes 40 days down to Mount Horeb, which is used in terms of its name interchangeably with the name Mount Sinai, same mountain range where Moses will receive the Ten Commandments, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I sometimes wonder what Elijah must have thought about walking that distance in 40 days. Not a plane trip, not driven by Uber, no. But the serious questions in life, who am I? Where did I come from? What am I doing here? Where am I going? Who is God? Not for my parents, but who is God for me? And he got there, and he went into the cave, and God, who always initiates and pursues, asked him the question, Elijah, what are you, mm, personality, doing activity? Here, geography. It's a question, not a salvation but it's a question of the ministry. I called you to the southern kingdom. You're all the way down here in the Mount Sinai region. What are you doing here? What's your purpose for being here? To be isolated in a cave? Is that what I've called you to do? Those are the implications. And Elijah has a response. I've been very zealous, enthusiastic. I've been very passionate for you. And for your cause, because the people of the northern kingdom of Israel, they have broken down your altars. They're not worshiping you anymore, even though you've, you've given victory at Mount Carmel. And they have rejected your covenants, not contracts, but covenants. And they have killed your prophets. And they're trying to kill me, and I'm the only one. I hope you can hear that. God, I'm the only one you got left. And now they're trying to take my life. And God says to him, Elijah, come stand on top of the mountain here. I'm going to take and uh, <clears throat> pass by you. Elijah understands that language because that's what happens in Exodus chapter 33, verse 22. When Moses has asked to see the glory of God and God says to him, I'm going to pass by you. I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock. I'm going to cover you up with my hand. I'm going to pass by and let you see my back parts. But you can't see my face because no one can see me and live. Elijah, stand right there. I want to demonstrate something. The wind that was furious passed by swiftly, but God was not in the wind. The earthquake was shattering and rock breaking, but God was not in the rock breaking of the earthquake. And the fire was blazing, but God was not in the fire. Because God manifests his power by his works. But then God let him hear a 
gentle whisper because when you whisper, you don't really use your vocal cords. Simple, common, unimpressive, much more impressive. All the earthquake, the wind, and the fire, but just a simple whisper. And the Bible says it had such an effect upon Elijah that Elijah took his cloak and covered up his face because he recognized that God was in the still small voice. He manifests his power through his works, but he manifests his person through his word. We must not be caught up by works, by signs. Do they happen? Yes. By miracles, do they happen? Yes. But when they don't happen, if you and I consistently trust in his word, can I trust in his word when nothing is happening, when there is no earthquake, wind, or fire, when there is no wonder, when there is no deliverance, when there is no miracle, can I still trust what he said in Hebrews 13 and 5? I will never leave you nor forsake you. Is the word enough? Or must we have the dramatic and the sensational? Or is the word sufficient? And it had to be for Elijah. God asked him the same question again. Elijah, what are you doing here? Twice, twice. What is it? Is Elijah hard of hearing? Or is he a victim of amnesia? That God will have to ask him that twice like he has to do for us. We keep talking about God's doing a new thing. No, he's not. God's not doing a new thing. God's doing the same thing he has been doing based upon what's in his word. If it's not in his word, he's not doing it. Because what he does is predicated upon his word. Like a good parent saying to a child over and over again, didn't I tell you? Has anybody aside from Robert Smith ever heard that from a parent? Didn't I tell you over and over and over and over again until we finally get it? Mm. Then God says, and I'm over time, then God says to Elijah, I want you to go back the way you came. Go back the way you came. Take the route back that you took to get here. God is calling us back, back, back to the passion we once had when we first found the Lord. Back to the time when we came to church expecting something to happen that was not on the program. Back to the time where when baptism took place, tears were in our eyes because this was not just an event. Someone had crossed over and angels were rejoicing over the salvation of one said, back. It's hard to go back. Hard to go back for the prodigal son. He's got to go back to his father. It's hard to go back for the church at Ephesus. In Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, you have left your first love. Now return back and reignite the fire that has gone out. Jesus' mother and his guardian, Joseph, since Jesus didn't have an earthly father, God is his father, uh, they left, they left with what they thought they left with Jesus uh, doing his first bar mitzvah 
in Jerusalem. They thought he was, they went a day's journey thinking he was with their kinfolks, he was with his kinfolks and acquaintances, but he wasn't. And they searched, and they finally went back to Jerusalem where they left him. God calls us back. Take me back, Andre Kraut says. Take me back, dear Lord, to the place where I first received you. Take me back, take me back to the place where I first believed. Don't you want to go back and recapture that love that has grown cold for the Lord? Don't you want to go back? God said, go back. I'm not done with you, Elijah. I'm going to reassign you. You're going to um, <clears throat> anoint Jehu, the king of the northern kingdom. You're going to anoint Haziel, the king of Aram or Syria, which are the enemies of Israel. And you're going to anoint Elisha, who's going to take your place. I'm not finished. One of the great, 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 great texts uh, to me, all the texts is, is wonderful. This speaks to me. Jesus rises from the dead and he gives um, a greeting um, to Mary Magdalene to take to the disciples in Mark chapter 16, verse 7. And he says this, Mary, go tell my disciples and Peter that I go before them to meet me in Galilee. And Peter, had he just said to Mary to tell his disciples, Peter would not have thought he had been invited. Why? Because he's denied the Lord not once, twice, but three times. Why would he be invited to a meeting? He's disqualified himself. But Jesus is saying to Peter, Peter, I'm not done with you. I know you became a bitter Dick Arnold, a turncoat. You denied that you knew me. I know, but I told you. You are Simon, fluttering bird, but you shall be called Peter, shall be. I see your potential. I know you're falling, and I knew that you were going to fall even before you fell. And I already had you scheduled to preach the church's first revival on the day of Pentecost. And when you failed, I didn't scratch you out and put somebody else in. You failed, and I kept your name on the calendar. I'm not done with you. Brothers and sisters, don't you ever think, I know, I know all of us. All of us, all of us, all of us have some things in our past that should not ever be for us a time of shame. No, we don't believe in shame. We believe in guilt. Shame is being embarrassed of who you are. You are no longer who you are. Hear me well. You are becoming who God has already made you. God already sees you glorified. He doesn't wait till you become glorified. He sees you glorified. He already sees you blameless, faultless, sin already. And therefore, no shame, just guilt. Thank God for guilt because guilt causes us to repent. Guilt causes our heart to ache because we have broken the heart of God. And then God says, tell my disciples and Robert, <laughs> and I'm so grateful for that, and Robert, that God will never, ever, ever finally forsake you. And Elijah did that. And then one other thing, verse 18. I'm almost done now. Almost. Elijah, you don't keep books right. You don't count like I count. Verse number 18. 
you say that I'm the only one left. Elijah, I've got 7,000 prophets, people who have not bowed the knee to Baal nor kissed his image. Don't you and I ever think that God is just depending upon us, that we are the only one? No. What a privilege it is to represent God. As I get ready to take my seat, Elijah and Jesus. Elijah is born in a relatively obscure town, Tish. Jesus is born or comes from a town by the name of Nazareth. And Nathaniel asks, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Elijah goes 40 days and 40 nights without eating anything. And Jesus fasts 40 days and 40 nights without eating anything. Elijah is the one that people refer to when Jesus asked in Matthew 16, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And Jesus said to the, to the disciples, tell me. And they said, well, some say that you are Elijah. And at Jesus on the cross of Calvary, as he stretched his arms wide, and there were nails driven there, and nails in his feet, cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. And other people were thinking, he's calling on Elijah. Elijah went to heaven on a fiery chariot without dying. But thanks God that Jesus will be carried into heaven on a cloud. Elijah showed up at the, the great transfiguration meeting along with uh, Moses. And Jesus was standing there with Elijah on one side, representing the prophets, but then Moses representing the law. And God said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Don't hear Moses because he's pointing to Jesus. And don't hear Elijah because he's pointing to Jesus. But one of these days when he comes back again, it won't be Elijah and it won't be Moses, but it will be Jesus that every knee will bow down to and every tongue shall confess. This same Jesus who died one Friday and rose on Sunday morning with all power in his hand. Thanks be to God that he takes us out of the agony of the feet to the thrill of victory, never to def experience defeat again. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.